Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to be reading from verse 11 through to verse 25. And let's be reminded that this is the word of the Lord. Verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, when, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? And they answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Riel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in, who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, "I have I have become a foreigner in a foreign land." During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Good morning again, everyone. Allow me just to, shift, to say a word of prayer just before I start Heavenly Father, just for the next few minutes, allow us just to block the noise of the world and the noise of our heads and allow us to hear from you so that we can leave this place transformed and renewed through the Lord Jesus. Amen. You know, in 1996, the company Marvel Entertainment were struggling to make profits mainly from comic books and merchandise and toys. And so they laid off hundreds of people and they filed for bankruptcy not long after. But in 2009, there was a dramatic turnaround for the company. Their stocks suddenly soared and they were able to sell uh, some of their distribution rights to Disney for $4 billion. And this turnaround started really with one movie, and that movie was the very first Iron Man. Now, I don't think the movie Iron Man was popular because it was a superhero movie, as there has been other superhero movies before that. And it wasn't the acting, uh, it wasn't the best cast, but I believe the fascination in the movie Iron Man really comes from the storyline. See, the first Iron Man movie is really the origin story, that you have a smart and rich young man, but he's self-absorbed, he's narcissistic, he was then kidnapped and then he was imprisoned, uh, imprisoned in the desert. 
And during this painful ordeal, he was humbled, and he had this personal transformation, and then he comes out of the desert with a new attitude, a new mission in life, and with a greater power. A rich, arrogant man stuck in the desert comes out of the desert with a new mission and greater power. Now, I don't know about you, but I think Stan Lee, the creator of Iron Man, was reading the book of Exodus chapter 2. Because Exodus chapter 2 is really the origin story of Moses. And as we have looked at last week, we see that God at work in saving Moses from genocide. But see, that's not enough to make him this great leader of Israel. So today we'll see God at work, and he's still in the background, but he's transforming Moses to be the great leader God needed him to be, and he's really refined through fire. And this story is given to us not just for entertainment, like Iron Man, but, and not just to inspire us, but the author of Exodus wants to show us what it takes to be used by God for his glory. And so here in our passage, we have a paradigm of what it looks like to be transformed by God. The story teaches us some of the ways in which God is at work in our lives to lead us to him and to grow us in service for his glory. So how does God shape and transform people so that they are empowered to do greater work? And we'll see Moses' failure to being effective for God. So how does God change you and me for his glory? And the answer can be found here in Exodus 2. So three things I want to show you how God transforms people according to Exodus 2. And the three things are that God confronts our self-identity, and then God corrects our shame, and then thirdly, God calls us to service. He confronts our self-identity, he corrects our shame, and then he calls us to service. And all three must happen uh, for this to work. So firstly, I want to show you that God confronts our self-identity, that he, he challenges our perception of ourselves. So Exodus 2 really ends quite sadly. If you go to verse 22, it says that Zipporah, uh, Moses' wife, gave birth to a son, and Moses named him uh, his son Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. So here we find Moses reflecting his situation and feelings through his son's name. Because here, now we find that Moses is a refugee. He's grieving that he's away from his home, from family, away from his own people. He says that I'm a stranger in a strange land. He's saying that I lost, I've now lost my cultural and, and national identity. And so he doesn't know who he is anymore. And remember, he's 40 at this time. He's not a young person trying to find himself going through some sort of identity crisis. He's not just having a midlife crisis here, but he genuinely feels isolated from the life that he knows and he loves. Now, it, it might be hard for us to understand this, but in ancient times, that your family or your tribe is really your source of identity. During Moses' time, your, your family history really defines who you are, and it shapes who you will be become that people will judge you by your family tree. And so we see this throughout the Old Testament. When they mention who their father is, uh, or, or it mentions who, which tribe they belong in, they're telling us who they are. So the genealogy is very important because they're not just tracing who's married who and who's the son of who, but it's really a way to identify what type of person they are. That your family and your ethnic identity defines you. 
By the way, this is still very true in a lot of Asian and Middle Eastern culture, the, the concept of family identity. And this is why bringing honor to the family is, is a crucial in a lot of cultures. But see, at the end of chapter 2, we find Moses completely lost because he was stripped of his identity. In verse 15, we are told that Pharaoh is looking for him, wanting to punish and kill him. So somehow, Egypt has now rejected Moses. In verse 14, we see his own people rejecting him too because Moses tried to save one of them. And instead of showing gratitude and admiration for what he did, instead, instead of being hailed as a hero, he was mocked and rejected by his own people. So at the age of 40, when his personal identity should be well established, he's, he's neither an Egyptian nor a Hebrew. He's an outcast, an outcast, a marginalized, and a refugee. Now, family today or tracing our family line is not, it, it might not that be important for us. We don't normally judge people by their family because our society normally defines uh, more of our autonomous identity, that your family and culture, they won't define you, you define you. Our society tells us that you can be whoever you want to be. But if someone asks, well, tell me about yourself, right? We, we don't tell them our genealogy, often we give them our best attributes or best descriptions that we can find. So you might say, well, I'm a doctor or I work as a lawyer, because we take pride in our vocation. That's our identity. Or you might tell me where you live. I live in Bolcom Hills and not in Rudy Hill, because our suburb determines our reputation. Or others will prioritize their family. I'm married, I have three children. Because family gives us that meaning. Some of you will even define yourself by which NRL team, NRL team you follow because it, it feels like you belong to that tribe. But see, every one of us has something that defines us, that gives us that worth. We think, because I have this, because I can define myself with this, I have value, I have meaning. So every one of us has something in our life that we are very proud of, and this something is often what justifies our very existence. It's the very thing that helps us believe that life is worth living, that it's worth getting up in the morning. It keeps us going. And so if this something that defines us is suddenly taken out, it can often lead to anxiety and depression because we suddenly don't know who we are anymore. That if our identity is confronted, we are often lost. And for Moses, like most people in the ancient Near East, the family, the tribe, is what defines them. And what God does to, to, to shape and transform Moses is that he, he strips Moses of his personal identity. God takes out the very thing that defines who Moses is. Why? Because the biggest quality that God is looking for in a leader, or really in a, in a Christian, is humility. The first requirement to stand before God is to realize that we can do nothing without Him, and we are nobody compared to Him. That there is nothing in our hands we bring. That to enter God's kingdom, you need to humble yourself. Jesus said in Luke 14, for all those who exalt themselves, that if you think that you're somebody, then God will humble you. And, if you, and those who humble themselves are the ones who will be exalted. And so with God, everyone 
is equal. That you cannot impress God with your family or your work or even your religion. That if you want to be transformed by God, you need to understand that before Him, that you are nothing, that you, that you have to, to go to Him empty-handed because only then, only then can He fill you up. That's why in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says that if you are a Christian, then there's neither a Jew or a Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not saying that if you become a Christian, your ethnicity or gender, should, it's, it's not important anymore. No, they're still important. He's saying that your, that your national identity, your economic status, your gender, they don't ultimately define you anymore. You don't lose all that, but it is no longer what defines who you are. Paul, sorry, you no longer have, if you're a Christian, to seek, you don't, you don't have to seek the approval of your culture or your family or your, or your society or even the expectation of yourself. God tells you who you are. He redefines your identity and he says that you are his child and that is more than enough to complete your status. And so the first les- lesson for Moses and for us is to be willing to lose ourselves in order to gain our identity in Christ. That we are called to deny ourselves, we are called to die to ourselves. Now secondly, second way God transforms us is that God corrects our shame. Now think of all the things that Moses had lost. He went from being served all the time in a royal household, in the, in the great uh, Egyptian empire, and he's now 40, living in a tent in the middle of nowhere. He Previously had a a great title. He was the honorable prince of Egypt. Now he's an obscure, poor shepherd working for his father-in-law. That he had everything going for him. He had the best upbringing. He He went to the best school. He had the best opportunity in life. He could have possibly been the next pharaoh. And now he's a nobody. And as we said, that your personal identity is stripped, that you're lost, you're a nobody. And so, no doubt he could have been filled with a lot of shame and regret in his life. And here's something else. Moses possibly knew that he was meant to do something for God. That he knew that being an Egyptian by status and having this political power, while at the same time he knew that he had Hebrew blood in him, meant that he was meant to do something special for that, with that. Maybe, maybe Moses thought that he can bring justice and liberation between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. Maybe he he thinks that he will be Pharaoh one day, he can rule a united kingdom. Or perhaps he thought that he can bring justice and liberation by becoming a vigilante superhero because we are told that when he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, he takes action and he, he kills that person in secret. That he makes sure that no one is looking, then he tries to hide it. And Moses thought that he can bring justice by using his own power according to his own way by killing. But instead, his murder led to shame and guilt. So again, chapter 2 ends with Moses, a a poor middle-aged refugee, and he's also a fugitive, away from family, away from home, working for his father-in-law as a shepherd in the middle of of the desert. He's probably thinking, what have I done with my life? How the heck did I get here? He's probably reminiscing of the good old days in the palace and regrets his life decisions. And I'm sure many of us 
can relate to that situation. And we ask the same question, what happened to my life? How did I get here? I used to be this and that, and now I'm going nowhere. Maybe you had a certain personal ambition when you were young, and the older you get, the more you realize it's not, it's not possible, and so you, you settle for something less and less and less. And then your life goal now is basically just to survive. And life is just full of big regrets and shame. Now, you might even relate to our own Christian faith, that when you first became a Christian, you had all these big plans of you, what, what you wanted to do for God and for His kingdom. You were full of passion and full of courage to do anything, that you were ready to go anywhere. Or maybe you, were, you had big dreams for Tungabi Baptist, that you were full of excitement, wanting to be part of everything. But now you've lost that passion and you drag yourself to church every Sunday. Maybe like Moses, you care about justice or the poor or the oppressed. So you try to do something in your own way, in your own time. And like Moses, it just leads to failure and it leads to discouragement. So whether you're a Christian or not, a lot of us, I can say, has a lot of deep sense of guilt and shame that you, that you might have not met your family's expectation or the society's expectation or your own expectation or even God's expectation and you're just carrying this burden of shame thinking that you amount to nothing. That your failure leads to shame, your, sh your shame leads to discouragement, your discouragement now leads to hopelessness. That if you fail something in life that you'll feel kind of embarrassed about it and you feel like a loser and you, you don't want to do it again or you don't want to do anything ever and so you feel that you feel that way long enough you start to feel hopeless and incompetent and then you say to yourself you're worthless and see, so this is what God corrects when he comes into our life when God comes in he confronts who we think we are he confronts our self-identity Right? He, he humbles us before him. He shows us that without him, we are nothing. But he doesn't just leave us laying in there. He, he doesn't leave us in, his, in our misery. He enters our mess. He meets us where we are. And then he lifts us up, shows us who we are in him. And, that, and what we can do with his power and his presence in our life. God is saying, you, yes, you, you, you cannot do anything without me, but with me, you can do anything. That's his assurance for us. And as a church, that we can do nothing without God, but with God, we will be unstoppable. Remember we said last week that everything was happening according to plan, that even though we don't see God, it doesn't mean that he's not doing anything in our life. And this is exactly what is happening in Moses' life. That all this, all this was happening as part of his transformation. That remember, Moses, 40 years old, he, run, he runs away and settles in Midian. And see, between chapter 2 and chapter 3 is another 40 years. It means Moses is 80 before he returns to Egypt. It was another 40 years in the desert of just feeling guilt and shame and hopelessness. But it wasn't 40 years of wasted life. Because see, in a human point of view, we think that, oh, 40 years, what a waste. But remember, God were, were, was, was there shaping him. God was there uh, um, molding Moses to be the leader that he wants him to be. 
And so, if you think that you're you're too old and you have nothing to offer, remember Moses was 80. Some of you are burnt out and just had enough with life or with ministry. But Moses' failure was necessary. It was important. It was necessary for him to be effective for God. See, in God's divine sovereignty, He can use our pain to bring comfort to others. He can use our failure to make other people successful. He can use our bondage to help others live in freedom. That He can use our shame and turn that around to be an overwhelming grace and love for others. Whether wherever you are in your life right now, whatever mess that you have done, God is willing to enter your life and be part of it. Well, how do you know that? Because that is exactly what Jesus Jesus showed us. That Jesus Christ, Son of God, He was rejected like Moses by His own people. He says that foxes have holes. Sorry, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. Meaning that, like Moses, Jesus was an outcast. And then, even though he was innocent, he was condemned as a criminal. That on the cross he took our guilt, he took our shame, and turned it. He turned it around. He turned it into grace and salvation. Why? Why did he go through all that? Because Hebrews 12 it says this. It says, "For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning. He took the shame." It says he endured the shame of the cross. For the joy that was set before him. Now, what was that joy? The joy of welcoming you into his kingdom. See, that was his motivation to endure the shame, to be, to include you in his kingdom. The cross is a reminder for us that 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 if we are willing to humble ourselves before God, He can turn things around for our good and His glory. Here's Moses, 80 years old. He was happy to settle with the with the mediocrity of of desert life, but now God says, "Now you're ready. Now you're ready to be called," which leads us to our third point. And to complete God's transformation, God calls us to serve. Now next week. We'll look into Moses' encounter uh, in chapter three.、Uh, in chapter three, God really starts to reveal Himself. That in verse four, we can see that God calling Mo- Moses from the burning bush. It is also the chapter three where where God really starts to make Himself known. That He's not just in the background anymore. He's like in the foreground. That He's He's right there. But see, as Exodus two ends, we see the shift. It's shifting from focusing on Moses. To focusing to to the main character, which is God, and the chapter ends like this. It says that the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of the slavery went to God. God heard their groaning, and He remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So remember, there's two stories happening simultaneously at this time. One. Is a story of Moses being rescued and shaped by God. At the same time, while that is happening, the Israelites are still crying in pain and in misery. And as we said, that the reason why God saved Moses from death last week, and the reason is the same reason that that God is shaping Moses is that He is calling him for service. Now, this is this is true for all of us. That the Christian calling is not just a calling to have a relationship with God, but it is a calling to serve. 
It's a calling to lay our life for the sake of God's purpose and mission. It's, a, it's not an additional option if you want to do this. No, it is for everyone. That if you are a Christian, that God has called you to himself to know him and to love him, but he has called you to serve others, to know others, and love and serve them. Now, this is very important because a lot of people believe that to be a Christian, you simply have to pray a prayer and invite God into your heart. But listen, you don't invite the, the supreme, sovereign God of the universe into your heart. He's not like a puppy that you call and then he gives you sentimental feelings to make you feel better. See, with God, Moses interrupts his life. Moses was, again, ready to settle in Midian. And he's 80. He wants to retire. And, it, and God comes in. Because Christianity is not something that you just add into your life to give you a sense of spiritual enlightenment. Christianity is a call to turn your life around for the service and the glory of God. See, right now, as we said, there's another story. The story of God right now. God is right now in the background redeeming his people. And so Moses' salvation, as we said, it wasn't just for, for his own sake, that he wasn't just saved so that he's, so that he's alive, that his misery was not wasted, but it was part of God's transformation. And so for us, whatever you're going through, it is not wasted as God will be using that for someone else's salvation, for someone else's pain. And if you are here today and you're like the Hebrew people, it says that you are going through something and you're groaning and you're crying out to God. And here's the assurance. Look at what God is doing. That God hears their cry he remembers his promise. It's not that he forgets. It means that he remembers, meaning that he is faithful to his promise. And then he looks to them, to the people, and the NIV translate that he was concerned, but I think that's actually a weak translation because literally it says that God sees them and he knows them or he understands them. It's a relational verb. And so God understands what you're going through because God has sent someone greater than Moses who left his heavenly palace, who was rejected by his own people, he was condemned on the cross, and he bore our shame and guilt so that he fully, he fully understands what you're going through, and he cares. And that is why he has made a way for you to cry out and for you to be saved if you call out to him. Every one of us right now is being shaped by God. And then he's going to call us, or maybe he has called you, to love and serve others. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for our salvation. But Lord, as you've said, that we are not just called for our sake, for our own benefit, but you have called us to be part of your kingdom, to be part of building your kingdom and serving others. So Lord, we pray that as we, as we look upon the cross, that we not only see our salvation, but we will see our calling to help save others. And we know, Lord, that you don't really need us, but we find our joy and our purpose in being part of your calling. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.